0: Hello, thank you for joining us for the next episode of ACE GP Training. My name is Priya and I'm a GP ST4 working in Hertfordshire and over the next few months I'll be joined by some incredible guests with the aim of helping you to not only ACE GP training, but also to guide you as you start work as a fully qualified GP. We would love to hear from our listeners, so please do get in touch by leaving a comment Or review through your podcast provider, and that will help us tailor future content, but also help others find us too. I've put our details in the bio if you want to email or contact us through Twitter. Hello, and welcome to this episode on managing long term conditions. As we all know, long term conditions are becoming increasingly prevalent, but also increasingly complex to manage for a variety of different reasons. Today, I'd like to focus less on the medical management of long-term conditions, but more on how we can adapt our consulting to better engage patients and how we can use aspects of lifestyle medicine to help with this. I'm joined by two clinicians who are great advocates of lifestyle medicine, Dr. Jen West and Dr. Richard Pyle, who are going to share some of their experiences, but also give us lots of tips to help us with our consulting. Jen Richard, thank you so much for joining us.
1: You're welcome.
2: Thank you for having us.
0: It would be great if you could briefly tell us a bit about yourselves and your interest in this area. Jen, I'll start with you.
1: Okay, well, I'm Jen, I'm Jen West, and uh, I'm probably a lot older than most of you because I qualified first in 1982, and I prided myself throughout my life in general practice in being a holistic doctor and always looking at the wider aspects of why the patient was in front of me. But it was only when I left my practice, burnt out and bereaved two years ago, and actually looked at my own lifestyle and what I could do to help myself, that that developed my interest in lifestyle medicine. And I realized that the stuff I'd been telling my patients was only a fraction of the knowledge that was out there. So I've spent the last two years Improving my knowledge in lifestyle medicine, preparing to sit the BSLM exam, and I'm here to talk to you this morning. That's wonderful. How inspirational. Thank you,
0: Jen. And hi, Richard.
2: Hi, Priya. Yeah, I'm, I'm Richard. I'm a GP in St Albans in Hertfordshire. I'm the uh, integrated care system lead for lifestyle medicine prevention and inequalities. Bit of a mouthful. I think it's fascinating when people talk about lifestyle medicine because we, we pretty much always have a story as to why we are here. One of my colleagues once slightly disparagingly said, oh, those people that bang on about you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, they've all got a history of having problems in those areas. And I'm thinking that that's the whole point. We, we have a story which has informed our clinical practice. So, so my story briefly is that I have four, a wife and four children, and my oldest, Luke, has severe complex epilepsy and a learning disability. And when Luke still lived at home with us, looking after him was essentially being like being on call twenty four hours a day, and that's not an exaggeration. We were very familiar with ambulances, resus, various AEs across the country, uh, having to do bag and masking at home, and home oxygen and suction machines and whatever. And our life was becoming increasingly tough. And I was still trying to hold down a full time job as a GP partner, and so I started to explore. I was already physically active, but I started to explore better sleep, which I was very bad at uh, out of choice, and drinking a bit less, and developing a mindfulness practice. And it, so, mine kind of experience grew very it's a slightly overused word, but grew very organically out of that. And then I started reading a lot, and I listen to podcasts all the time. So it's great to be on a podcast. And I did write a book as well, which was published a couple of years ago in, in April. And so it's become a real passion for me. And I realized a bit like Jen that although perhaps I wasn't quite at the burnout point I could see it at some point in the distance I wanted to be proactive and I now try to practice within the confines of reality which I think is a really interesting discussion if we get onto that today as best I can and even if that means just one or two conversations a day with with patients that are different from how I would have done it 10 years ago then I consider that a win.
0: That's wonderful thank you so much for sharing that with us Richard. So what do you think are the current challenges when managing patients with long-term conditions?
1: I think one of the biggest challenges is that general practice has become telephone-based and patients with long-term conditions in particular are not happy with this. They feel they need a dose of the doctor face-to-face in order to engage with whatever management strategy they're choosing to to carry out. And I think nationwide, that's probably the biggest challenge, that we've gone from face-to-face consultations for everyone to having to beg, scrape and bow before the receptionist in order to get a face-to-face consultation. And, and I think
0: you're right, because actually for a lot of patients, just seeing the doctor, so physically seeing the doctor, is a therapeutic intervention in itself. What about
2: you, Richard? In terms of the challenges that that we face when it comes to this, I I think the problem is that, and I hope this answers your question, I was just listening to Jen's question, uh, Jen's answer. Face-to-face is uh, um, not so much of an issue for me. I I take Jen's point that for some people, face-to-face is better. For others, actually, phone is better. For me, the big challenge and the problem is that we're now reaping the whirlwind of many, many years of bad practice, and what we've ended up with is a... Jen and I agree on this, a sickness-based model of, uh, that's reactive, that really kicks in from the point of diagnosis onwards, at which point you almost inevitably, it appears, need drugs and for experts to take over your lives, at which point we potentially risk giving the message that uh, it's no longer anyone's responsibility to engage with that themselves. And the problem is that we have a model where with all the nice guidance and all the targets that were given a lot of it's about drugs and to quote the verb the drugs don't work at least the drugs don't work in brackets very well they do for some people with very specific uh, acute inflammatory horrible conditions treatment for cancer etc but to be honest for things like hypertension and cholesterol and diabetic control the drugs don't work that well antidepressants don't work that well But we've deviated from what we once upon a time knew to be an instinctive model of medicine that was based around lifestyle and nature and common sense and we've deviated into a very technical model of of medicine which is unwieldy and cumbersome and now we look at the bolt-ons and the guidelines and the tech more than we do the basics. And I think this was always coming. It's just been made worse because of the events of the last few years, which is, you know, another topic of conversation. But that has thrown it into sharp relief. And that for me is the the big problem. We don't practice the right model of medicine.
0: So I guess looking at the prevention side of things as opposed to waiting till things get completely out of hand and then we're at the point of medication. Is that sort of what you're That's definitely part of it, yeah. Yeah.
1: I would say, yeah, I would say not prevention. I think prevention is not the word I would use. And I think that's, that's where we go wrong. I've become, over the past couple of years, a real firm believer in the phrase lifestyle medicine because prevention is an incredibly negative word. Don't do that. Stop that now. Whereas lifestyle medicine is a very positive message that you're giving to people. So I think that's why Richard describes himself as lifestyle medicine first and then prevention, then inequalities lead for our area because i think the lifestyle medicine people need a positive message
0: and that actually leads quite nicely on to so what what is lifestyle medicine and how does that approach differ to i don't know what the word is but maybe traditional medicine if if that is the right term to even use
1: i say that we are trained as fp10 doctors from the beginning of our chip training as gps we look forward to that day when Nowadays, it's all computer prescriptions, but we used to get a pad on our desk with our name on it. We'd become an FP10 doctor. And in front of us, we had this power to treat people, we pretended, and certainly close down conversations by handing them a piece of green paper. And I think we need to get away from that into a different model and I'm going to pass over to Richard because he's very good at summarising the different model.
2: Yeah, I agree with all of that. I think your question was interesting, Priya, because you said something like you talked about the model and you can't remember the word you used, but you th- there was almost an implication that we view modern medicine as the default model lifestyle medicine is, is, is alternative and a bit woo-woo. That's the problem. The default should be lifestyle medicine, and everything else is a bolt-on, which in some people is going to make a bit of a difference, but at the most. And when we define lifestyle medicine, you know, but we're looking at the basic things which are important for your health and well-being, the evidence around that, the use of them to prevent, manage, and sort of ameliorate long-term conditions. I'm sure there's a better Definition that someone from the BSLM could give you, but anyway, that's my top of my head. And those key pillars are: I would put them in order of priority. Purpose and meaning in life, connections, by which I mean relationships, physical movement. Uh, sorry, no, I'll go for sleep next, then physical movement, stress, and sort of relaxation, and nutrition. All of those last few ones are all equally important. I'm not I'm not saying nutrition is bottom of the pile at all. I think it's very important. But but all of those things, the challenge there is that it's good news and bad news because. In some respect, the good news is that anyone can do this and you don't need to be a doctor, which is great. The bad news potentially for for the public is that what we're saying is back to you not you know go and sort yourself out but actually let's have a conversation about rights and responsibilities and what's in your control no matter how difficult life is there are some things you could change and if you're looking for a model that involves me giving you pills for the rest of your life and sending you off to a few clinics and you can sit back that's not going to work that's not going to end well for you but also the bad news for health professionals is that it does require us to be to potentially reconsider what our role is and if you derive satisfaction from being a specialist surrounded by equipment prescribing fancy drugs which in some respects is not particularly effective you can do that for the rest of your life because you'll have guidance that supports you in doing it but if you really want to be effective you need to be thinking more about long-term conditions and, and, and just not getting them in the first place and, and we're having the conversation is not advanced enough yet because we we can see both in primary and secondary care, I don't want to just single secondary care out for this. We can see there's still a real culture issue there. And I spoke to, I'm not going to name them, but I spoke to the chief medical officer of an ICS, not a million miles away from here. And she said to me, That's fascinating. Uh, what is lifestyle medicine? Okay. They're an endocrinologist. And uh, so, you know, <laughs> I think there's still work to do.
0: <laughs> Why do you think that the majority of doctors, stray away from this way of practicing? Is it just too, too much effort? Is it too hard? Is, there, is it because of time pressures? I don't think it's lack of knowledge, actually, because a lot of this is
1: common sense as well. I think it's how we're trained, because we're trained to be FP10 doctors. We're trained to take a disease-focused model of someone's presenting problem uh, so through the different systems, you're thinking anatomically, thinking pathologically. We're trained to organize blood tests to confirm or refute our suspicions. And then we're trained to prescribe according to what we think we found. And hey, you're ST4, Priya. It's taken you four years to be trained to do this. And there is so little training in lifestyle medicine for GPs, so, well, they know the common sense bit because your common sense is common, but it's not very big. It's just a tini- the tiniest idea because whatever muscle you use most becomes your most powerful muscle. And if your diagnostic, according to conventional medicine, traditional forms of disease, is the muscle that you're using on a daily basis, that becomes your default and becomes your most powerful muscle.
2: I agree. And I think the problem is that modern medicine is a a, a very powerful, but also a, a heavy and blunt tool. And if everything looks like a, if the only tool you've got is a hammer, then everything looks like a nail. That's the issue. Um, and I think it's a mix. It, it is training because actually you say people are knowledgeable, but actually I'm not sure that as many people are. I'm not sure all doctors understand, could describe the benefits of physical activity and how much you should be doing. I'm not sure that all doctors could tell you what sort of diet you should be eating. I'm not sure if all doctors could tell you what the numbers needed to treat are for non-drug measures, like the Mediterranean diet for depression and for primary prevention, despite all the drugs that we prescribe, which actually have much, much worse numbers needed to treat. But also, then this is where it's important we don't come across as judgmental and ivory tower people, because I cannot stand lifestyle medicine practitioners who actually don't do the day job and live in ivory towers. We, You know, it's reality. It's it's the challenge. It's capacity we've got all these, uh, we've got NICE guidance, we've got COAF, we've got the ECF, we've got the IIF, we've got whatever else. We've got surgeries being filled up by our, uh, for us if we're salaried doctors or whatever. And you're thinking, gosh, I've got all these boxes flashing at me on the screen. How am I going to find time to talk to someone about their relationships? So there is absolutely a time pressure. And that's why I think you need a pragmatic guerrilla uh, warfare approach, smash and grab approach to lifestyle medicine sometimes, because you, you don't get half an hour with every patient.
0: Yeah. Is that the concept that you were talking about at the beginning? You mentioned about being sort of realistic about what sort of can be achieved. Yeah.
2: Yeah. One of my partners once said to me very patronisingly 20 years ago, Richard, there's no such thing as a simple consultation. To which my response is, yes, there is. And when you have a simple (laughs) consultation, see, I didn't swear on the podcast. When you have a simple consultation, then you use that ruthlessly to catch up so that you do two minutes on the person that you probably should never have got through your triage system anyway. But then you spend 15 or 20 minutes or half an hour with the person and it becomes really apparent very quickly that you need to talk about that. And you, you face that, you have that moment, that path in the road where you're either going to go down the route of talking about IBS, giving them colofac and referring them to a gastroenterologist and a psychiatrist, or you're going to start having have the conversation about their sleep, their relationships, their work uh, etc and their nutrition and um, you don't do that with everyone all the time and you might put in the time to start with and then you might have some follow-up conversations which are shorter or you might even say it's great we've had this conversation here are now some other people that I can pass you on to who perhaps are are better than me to talk about this and have more time.
0: And I guess that's the benefit with the sort of PCNs and the other allied healthcare roles that are within our PCNs now, like our health and wellbeing coaches, or social prescribers, et cetera. So they're, they're helping out with this aspect of things as well. So if we've got a trainee listening to this and thinking about how can I practically start implementing some of these tools into my consulting and practice, What would you suggest? So and I don't know if it's useful here to think about an example patient, for example, someone with uh, diabetes, for example, that's not, you know, extremely badly controlled, but there is room for improvement. So I guess a lot of people just say, "Okay, metformin, there you go. Bye. See you in three, four months time. What sort of tips would you give to a trainee, you know, thinking about that kind of scenario and how they could sort of change their
1: consulting and what advice they could give to the patient? I'd say be curious and listen to the patient, because there's very few people who sit in front of you and say, I've got this disease, I know it's going to need pills, and yes, I'm happy to take them for the rest of my life. That is not what patients say. What patients say is, oh, Does this mean pills forever? And that's where it's it's actually much easier to sell as a, well, it doesn't have to. You know, there's there's a lot of evidence out there that we can work with you, with your lifestyle and improve whatever condition it is, whether it's uh, prostate cancer, your watchful waiting in prostate cancer is better treated with diets. Diabetes is better treated with diet. Hypertension is as effectively treated with, with diet and exercise. So there's... But you've got to be curious. You've got to be curious about where the patient's coming from, and you've got to have the knowledge. And if you don't have that knowledge, you can't... You, you kind of don't have the, the ping, ping, ping that lets you get something out for the patient. And when you say be curious specifically...
0: What sort of things should we be being curious about?
1: What the patient, what the person in front of you? Because I think of them as people rather than patients. And I try to use that word uh, because I think patient is a disempowering archetype. You know, I am a patient and we expect them to be patient. You're not impatient. <laughs> yeah. So I try to see the people in front of me as people. So I've sort of done that change and it took me a lot of time to do it. And I try to be curious about what they're thinking about the the illness, what they believe about the illness. What do you think about your diabetes? Where do you think it's come from? Why do you think you've got it now? What is it that's changed in your life? Because for me to come in and say, do this, do this, do this, isn't going to work. They've got to be the one who says, yes, actually, I haven't been eating terribly well. I just know my diet's not good. I'd really quite like a bit of help with that. And then you've got an open door.
2: Yes, I would, I would build on the comments Jen's made, which I agree with completely. So it is about relationships. Now, you don't necessarily need to have known this person for 30 years, but you do need to take that time to establish it, which you could do potentially in the course of one consultation and you know, them having trust and confidence in you. Knowing my friend Steve, I don't think he's taking the credit for this, but he was the first person I heard say it. He said, talking to people about not what's the matter with them, but what matters to them and so um, I think he cribbed it off someone else but anyway we'll we'll, we'll credit him Uh, and um, so having that conversation because otherwise as Jenna suggested you are simply going I'm the doctor this is what's wrong with you do this at no point have I checked whether you understand it whether you agree with it or whether and this is where the behavior bit comes in or whether you know how to to do this so I think what you need to try and answer your question is a framework now some people listening to this might have been on the Prescribing Lifestyle Medicine course. They have a symptom web or something like that that you that you can sort of work your way through. It really doesn't matter. You don't need to go on a, on a course costing lots of money. Uh, the trick is just to have a framework that you use consistently. And just like we, when we learn as GPs, we're usually taught a consultation model, aren't we? And in, in my day, it was... Um, ideas, concerns, and expectations, the sort of RCGP, Tate Pendleton book or whatever, and Roger Neighbor. But, you know, think, have in the back of your mind, okay, so what is it? It's it's purpose and meaning, relationships, sleep, movement, nutrition, stress management. And, and you don't need to cover all six of those, but you may, an experienced consultant will very quickly probably hone in on one or two of those things that are the key issues in fact overwhelming someone with here are 17 things i think you should do to reverse your diabetes is probably not going to work but actually just agreeing that they're going to sleep more and take up yoga might well be the start and also giving them something that they're probably going to be able to achieve helping them agree what they want to achieve and then if they achieve that that's a success begets success doesn't it their confidence builds they enjoyed doing 30 minutes of walk a day and now they want to make it more intensive or they want to take up you know something else as well so it's having a framework it's not biting off more than you can chew it's providing continuity and follow-up you know if if you were speaking to someone who'd been just given a terminal diagnosis or wanted to talk about bereavement because their spouse had just died you wouldn't say well I can't talk to you or I can only give you 10 minutes and that's it you know you would give them longer and you might offer a further follow-up appointment and I think sometimes I've had pushback historically from colleagues about you know well if you spend all your time talking to people repeatedly for 30 minutes a time, how are we going to see all the emergencies, et cetera? So you have to be selective, but there are people. So for example, when I uh, see someone's pre-diabetic for the first time, that is a double face-to-face appointment unless they would prefer the, the phone. And it could be with me because obviously I'll rant until the cows come home about pre-diabetes and carbohydrates, but it could be with a doctor or a nurse that they trust and would prefer to speak to, because that's a big fork in the road, and their entire life could go one of two directions. So it's absolutely worth spending that time. But rather than spend the rest of your life discussing drug titration, and outpatient referral and admission for all the complications of their long-term condition.
0: I couldn't agree more. Like that example of that pre-diabetes diagnosis, I always think that's a key point to make a change. That is, and actually, I think, Jen, this sort of leads on to a bit to do with motivational interviewing and how we can use some of those almost consultation consulting styles to try and help people make changes to their life I have to say I don't know lots about motivational interviewing I hear it banded about a lot but that's how I understand it can be used is that right
1: yes and I think this is where it really is worth getting the knowledge and you can get the knowledge by watching videos you can get the knowledge by going to a course but you're probably looking at uh, theories of behaviour change, the Ronick described many years ago, and the health belief model. So you're looking at assessing, having a conversation, sort of ticking off in your head the boxes. Where is this patient? Where is this person in relation to their illness? What do they believe about the illness? Is it something that they're ready to change? If it's not something that they're ready to change, yeah, yeah, doctor, I've smoked for forty-one years, and you know, my uncle Tom was eighty-five when he died, and the, you know, <laughs> he was run down by a bus. You know, that person's not ready to think about stop smoking. So you would feed into that person a bit more about, well, you, your uncle Tom was a lucky guy, but do you know that more than fifty percent of people who smoke die of die young of smoking-related disease. So you're just feeding in a bit of information that you've got and wait for them to go. Uh, when you're ready to talk, stop smoking, I'd love to talk to you about it. So at every stage of assessing someone, it's get to where they are, assess where they are today, feed them in information that's level for right for that, that stage. and produce a hook that they'll they'll come back to you or they'll come back to your social prescriber, but they won't feel that they've been rubbished. Hey, my doctor's not interested in my drinking. You know, hey, my doctor's not interested in whatever it is, or you want them to leave not feeling blamed. So I think it's, I like to assess where they are. I find that most people want to change and want to change now. Uh, that's my talk to folks. And The big question is often, what's my motivation? (laughs) What's my motivation not to use a drug? What's my motivation to get a lifestyle change across to the person? So motivation is on both sides. It's doctor and and patient, let's use the word. So yes, get yourself educated, know where you are and be able to assess where your your person in front of you is.
0: That's really interesting. And it's just this conversation has made me think about, you know, the next time I do a sort of, not that we do chronic disease clinics as such, but say if I've got a run of of patients, almost to throw out the FP10 book and just to think, how many of these can I actually manage without prescribing anything? It would be quite interesting to, to, to see how many could be managed that way. And I think, uh, as you say, Jen, it does depend on the patient as well and where they are, you know, if they are ready to make that change as well.
1: I've done it in surgeries, done an audit of, you. I've set off in a surgery saying, right, today I'm going to see how much lifestyle stuff I can get in. And I can get 70% of patients treated with lifestyle interventions. Now, some of them get a medicine as well. Some of them get a blood test as well. Sometimes they get a referral for surgery. But it it does turn out that about 70% of the people in front of you there's a lifestyle intervention that you can offer. And I didn't believe it. When somebody told me that, I I did not believe it was as high, which is why I did my own audit. And hey, it was actually 66%.
2: I remember when Jen first told me about her audit, I thought that's great because I had a, an estimate in the back of my head. It was somewhere between 50 and 80%, depending on the day, you know, uh, as to how many, how, what proportion of your patients do you felt this was a core issue that was going to make a difference. So Jen's now got the science to, to back it up in, in her study, which, and, and which tallies completely. And, and uh, the thing is, people often imagine lifestyle medicine, it's one of those terms, where, uh, there's a bit of a backlash against it now. Not everyone likes lifestyle medicine. They're concerned it implies privilege, fat shaming, whatever. I think it's as good a term as any because actually at least most people understand kind of what it means. And we would only have to come up with a new term. I mean, you could call it life medicine or real life medicine or whatever. But people often imagine it's a bit woolly. They imagine that people who practice lifestyle medicine are people who, you know, grow their own sandals. And have a lot of facial hair. Now, okay, I have got some facial hair, but I think it's it's, it's proper hardcore medicine. It it's it's getting to the nitty gritty of what you need. Um, it's being smart. You know, if the person, as Jenna said, if the person is pre-contemplative in the cycle of change, don't be horrible to them. But if it's obvious they're not interested in in discussing what what you know they need, move on. Move on to another patient. Do something else. If they want to be fobbed off with a prescription for another antihypertensive, give them the antihypertensive. Nice will be happy with you, and then move on to the patient that that is concerned. Uh, but just know that you may have primed them. That initial conversation to which they didn't obviously respond. You know, priming is the term that's used by the behavioural psychologists. People they make them in six months or twelve months or two years time, they might just go, oh, yeah, that I'm ready now to to look at making changes.
0: That's so interesting. And I think it will be really interesting to see, because at the moment, as you mentioned, Quof, IIF, all of these other things, they don't encourage us to adopt these this way of consulting and practising. And it'll be interesting to see how long it takes for all of those groups to sort of catch up with this. Yeah. Jen, Richard, I could honestly carry on talking about this topic for for ages because I I love this area as well.
2: (laughs) As you can see. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um, I don't know where the time has gone, honestly. Um, But thank you so much. I'd love to carry on talking to you about this. But yeah, thank you for joining us today.
2: You're very welcome. Thank you.
1: Thank you for having us. Yes, it's been wonderful to meet you.
2: Thank
0: you. If what we've discussed has prompted any thoughts or questions, please do get in touch by leaving a comment, dropping us an email or finding us on Twitter at ACEGPtraining. And I'll include these further details in the bio as well as some extra resources for you to look at. Thank you and see you next time for the next episode of Training.